0: I think what's lacking, and I'm being a little bit generic in this, but what's lacking is emotion, right? I think we have gotten so dry in our B2B message and marketing. And so, for example, I just look at any good human interest story. Look at any lead-in in the Wall Street Journal. Any of those, even if it's a hardcore business story, they always lead with that moment, mm-hmm. that human interest moment. And how do we do that as B2B marketers? How do we pull that up higher? How do we talk about the day in the life? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm just saying, like, where, where's the human interest? I think we've just we've stepped so far away from that some companies i think can get there and do get there and i think we're talking a lot more about kind of human centric human centered this and that i talk about wrapping data around humans right instead of just talking about the data itself but i would say like just what's the interesting thing And i think these are some lessons that b2b you have to be on brand of course you do but be interesting be memorable be vivid right how, how do we do that
1: you're listening to the paris talks marketing podcast where we interview top marketing leaders at high growth SaaS and other recurring revenue based companies. Our goal with this podcast is to cut through the fluff and jargon of digital marketing to reveal what's really working at some of the fastest growing, most successful SaaS companies today. The Paris Talks Marketing Podcast is sponsored by Hop Online, a performance growth marketing agency. If you like this episode, and would like to have a similar conversation with someone at our agency, just go to hop.online, H-O-P.online, and book a discovery call with one of our strategists today. Now, let's get into the episode. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Paris Talks Marketing. And today, I'm with Andrew Harner. And Andrew he has run marketing, product marketing, and PR at global public companies, as well as fast growth startups, including One Unicorn, One Double Unicorn, and an IPO. His passion is to connect customers and users with innovative technologies that improve work and life. Most recently, Andrew grew the global marketing team at Symphony, the largest connected community of financial service professionals, as it grew from 35 million to over 100 million ARR and acquired two companies. Prior to that, he headed the marketing team at FS ISAC, a threat intelligence sharing organization, during its growth from 2,000 to 7,000 members across 44 countries, and helped launch and spin out its high growth, award-winning Solstra SaaS division. He frequently advises startups and provides pro bono marketing to women-owned businesses. So Andrew, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you. Great to be here. Appreciate it. Happy happy midweek. We made it.
1: Yes, thank you. So is there anything that I didn't cover in that bio that you'd like to introduce you know, yourself
0: with? We could spend the next 20 minutes on it, but let's not do that because no one's going to care. It's fine. I've been very fortunate in my career. I've had a lot of proud moments, worked with great teams, built great teams, still in touch with many team members. And so I'm grateful. And I think one of the key themes for me over the past few months has actually been starting with gratitude because we, we need to all be as grateful as we can for where we're at and what we've achieved. And that's kind of the top of my list right now. That's My daily meditation is just being as grateful as I can.
1: I fully agree with you. I think we're really lucky to be marketers at this, at this time with so many great opportunities and so much dynamic change happening. So gratitude is a must. I think there are a lot worse professions to be in right now.
0: Look, when I wrote a JD for a company recently to help them with a CMO position, and I I ran out of space on the page. It's like marketing covers so many disciplines, so many functional areas. And it just, it always amazes and impresses me when I really look at the full stack of what it takes to be a marketing leader. It's both what I call thrilling and terrifying at the same time. Right. So, I mean, what other yeah. job do you have to combine so many different discipline areas? I mean, it's rare. So,
1: yeah. Marketing really has evolved a lot. And I think that it's no surprise that often the marketing career paths are the ones that typically lead to the, to the C-suite and and often to the CEO as well, just because it's so all encompassing and it's the strategic na- nature of it continues to grow. Can you tell me a little bit of just about how your career has evolved? I mean, you've, you've been a part of, and you've been on the front row seeing unicorn, double unicorn, IPO and acquisitions. What are some of the themes that you've seen emerging from those experiences that have been common keys to success for all of those companies? Sure.
0: So, it's a great question. I think, first of all, the first half of my career really was focused on communications, PR, kind of Marcom, corporate marketing. And then the the second half of the career has really been product and solution marketing, demand, growth, go to market, partnering with sales teams. And in some ways, that was intentional because I had mentors that were helping me along my journey and my path. But I, I actually started life out thinking I wanted to be a journalist many, many, many years ago coming out of college. And I did that for about a year. I wrote for several papers in the Midwest. And I realized I love the crafting of the story and the headlines, but really I was not an investigative journalist. Like I learned to do it, but it wasn't mm-hmm. my thing. So I flipped over into PR, came out to Silicon Valley, but I never forget the power of research, the power of having multiple points of view, the power of storytelling and the power of a great headline. Those things just, I mean, I built my career around some of those things and still to this day. So those are kind mm-hmm. of anchors for me. Also, when I first came out to Silicon Valley, I worked for a, a CRM startup and so Martin Marketing was actually treated very similar to the sales team. Like we had, you know, pipeline and and quota, and I was measured as if I was a salesperson in a lot of ways. So that, again, that Im- implanted in me, and that and that mentality has carried through to the time now, where any marketer worth his or her salt or their salt really needs to be that growth fate, you know, that growth mentality. And as I say, at most CEOs they want two things for marketing: they want brand and demand, right? Brand and demand. And so you got to figure out what the mm-hmm. calibration balances on those things. Those are just a couple of the, the lessons. The, thing, the things I've seen evolve include community building, I think, is, is more important than ever, even for companies that are not necessarily focused on community. Um, you still have to have that component to it. And that, that's been a component of the past few organizations that I've been fortunate to be part of. The collaboration between marketing and sales. You know, there's there's the old kind of trope, right, of of marketing and sales fighting. I've been fortunate. I've never had that. It's always been very collaborative, very much Mm -hmm. like back-to-back rifles out in the trenches together, figuring stuff out. And so I think that is really critical. And like I say, marketing is connective tissue between the customer slash prospect, partners, product, sales, and growth teams. Marketing really is that connective tissue and has to provide kind of what I'll call the interstitials between multiple parts of the organization, which are very critical, whether you're launching a new product or shaping a go-to-market strategy or crafting a channel strategy. So those are some of the things I'm thinking about these days is that's more important than ever before. It's harder to do than ever before and companies i think that have had a mentality of growth at all costs you know i think with the current environment that those days are a bit a bit over and so we need to be clever and smart and lean but also very collaborative because that's how you win together. You, you reduce the friction and 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 you win together. Mm-hmm. So those are just a couple of comments.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I think that also the silos between marketing and sales are are coming down also because of the technology and the ability for marketing to actually measure downstream their efforts all the way downstream to revenue. Not just with this growing sophistication in CRMs, but now just with analytics, what you can do effectively is you can track pretty much from the first touch point, the first marketing touch point, all the way through to a sales closing and then on onward into lifetime value calculation from there. And I think most of the best organizations are doing that and marketing has to be more accountable for revenue than ever before. Yeah.
0: And the efficiencies of it too, right? You know, velocity, cost per whatever you want to add onto the end of it. Like I think you're right. And there's a kind of a mm-hmm. volume flow and a quality flow, but also a time element velocity as well. And I think Organizations are continuously looking at that. I know that some of the companies I've been talking with lately and advising, and even up to the board and, and investor level, really have an eye on that. Like, what is the what is the efficiency? Mm-hmm. So you're right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: yeah. You mentioned that it all really started with a love of journalism for you. And there was a great LinkedIn post that I'd like to refer to. And I think that you posted this. You gave 20 tips for PR and earned media. And there's some great stuff here. In my opinion, and you mentioned that the fact that now that the PR and marketing folks are outnumbering reporters now by a, about a thousand to one. I made that up.
0: I don't know if that
1: right. I believed yes. it. I mean, I knew I, it did sound like it was rounded, but, but uh, certainly marketing career are multiplying a lot faster than, than journalism. But still, the journalists, in a lot of ways, they hold the key to access, and they still are the gatekeepers to very large audiences. And I think it's a little bit of a lost art to reach out to journalists, and it's something that we've done a lot in our agency, and it's very difficult. And you've laid out some really great tips here in this post, but I'd like to hear more from you on this. Can you tell us about how you have been successful in getting earned media through journalist outreach and, and getting, getting coverage by some of these big media companies?
0: Yes. So I'll give you a few bright spots. Right. So and I do believe in stories. So I'm going to actually use a story to get to launch into this. But when I was in college, I had a, a favorite English professor. I was an English slash journalism major with a business writing emphasis, which was an important point to me. But this professor was just mm-hmm. a no BS kind of guy. He, he was a poet and he was a, a published writer, but he just was no. And so one at one point in the class, this one uh, student basically was trying to kind of pick an argument with him, which he had already kind of been through. And he basically stopped the class and he said, be necessary to this person. I won't name it the person. He said, be necessary. Mm-hmm. And I think that I'll never forget that moment. And I'll never forget that moment from a writing a journalistic standpoint. First of all, be necessary. Okay. It's not about you. Right. And so yeah. the next thing is, you know, be, be interesting, be interesting. What, what is interesting about it? And I would say the other thing is just respect who you're talking to. I think a lot of companies still blast their, the news out in whatever format and just expect there to be uptake. And certainly that can be a piece of it, but that's not the best. The best stuff doesn't come from that, right? I think about assembling all the components of a story that a journalist will need. You're not doing their work for them. You're just trying to help. And so I think about, okay, well, you might have a good spokesperson that has something to say, but then what are the counterpoints to that? The journalist is going to want that anyway. And I think you gain credibility by saying, look, I can bring to the table our point of view and three other point of view, and they might not all agree, but it makes an interesting tension and you should dive into this one. And then we're also gonna provide mm-hmm. you with some original research or data or a unique graphic that it makes it easy for your team to you know to publish this, I think. And then you have to consider the medium, like I said in, in my post too. It's like, are you talking about broadcast? Are you talking about print? Are you talking about radio? And by the way, I think radio is kind of a, an underutilized channel, but you know, mm-hmm. how can you package things up without being yeah. contrived in a way that just helps the journalist get their job done really and again you're certainly playing the seeds mm-hmm. of your own message of course that everyone wants to do that we know that they know that but how do you be helpful and well-rounded? How do you, how do you provide a 360-degree kind of view of the story you know, to the reporter to help them out? I, I think that's really important. And it has, to be, it has to be newsworthy. But a lot of it's about the story. It's not about the relationship mm-hmm. with the reporter. I think a lot there's a lot of stress on PR firms. I have friends that run very successful PR firms. It's a tough job. It's a very tough job. And, you know, like a CEO will go to the, the head of the agency and say, well, who do you know? And get me in, get me in. That's not mm-hmm. how it works at all. It hasn't worked that way in a long time. And now it doesn't work that way, especially doesn't work that way. So those are just a couple things, you know, be interesting. What's your tolerance? Uh, do you want to be provocative? You know, do, do you want to be a counterpoint or do you want to be the... Kind of the trusted data, you know, data-driven uh, source for the reporter. Like you have to pick your mode, right, and mm-hmm. and then map to the medium. And with that, you'll get farther that way. It's not always a sure bet, but you'll get farther that way. And then just be be respectful, be responsive. Yeah. I think it was John Itzstein on NPR had reached out years ago to get our CEO on NPR at FSISAC, and I was on vacation. I was at a lake in Ohio, and I had to run around to the other side of the lake to get a cell connection because NPR is on the phone and I conferenced in the CEO and we had the interview and it went well. And it's just sometimes moments matter with this too, but take advantage of that moment. When that moment comes, be ready. If you're on broadcast and they say, we need you at a studio in New York, you better make sure your CEO can get to that studio on time and be in that studio.
1: Yeah, that's right. Showing up, um, how does the expression go? I mean, sometimes showing up is more than half the half the battle or something like that. Yeah, but sh- showing up is important and being in the right place at the right time and being opportunistic when the moment is there uh, to take it. I was, just, I was just thinking about the very nature of PR because the R stands for relations and it, it has historically been about relationships. But I think that's wh- what you pointed out and I agree with is that relationships really take a backseat to the story itself. Even if the relationship is a little bit lousy, but the story is so good, that journalist still will probably will want to publish it. And so it's about not as much building and nurturing that relationship, but crafting the story to entice that journalist. And um, that's something that a reader would like to read. And we used to, we used to use a network back in the day, and I think it's still around. It's called Harrow Help a Reporter Out.
0: Oh, yeah. I participated yeah. in that. I'm a big believer in that. And it's awesome. Absolutely. Yeah, there's one other point, And that is this is I'm talking about kind of proactive outreach, right? You also have to be ready for the other side of it. And I've done a lot of crisis management. I'm not going to get into all that today, but a lot of crisis PR on behalf of major financial mm-hmm. institutions and industry consortiums. And that's a different situation, too. And as we see, like, Not every crisis is handled well, but never let a good crisis go to waste. And in that point, there's a different relationship you have with the reporters, right? And you have to be as transparent as you can, respond as immediately as you can, say enough but not too much, but don't ever try and manipulate that. Like, just don't do that. That's not the right way to do it. And even just a little bit of the truth is better than not the truth. And so um, that, I'll just say that's a different motion from a communication standpoint, but one that I think, mm-hmm. and we see it all the time, companies kind of stumble through the crisis and then maybe they get it right. Maybe they don't, maybe they take a reputation hit or not, but that's a different type mm-hmm. you know, of communication. So I'll just mention that too, because that's a big one these days. There, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of crises out there. So companies might want to think about that.
1: Yeah. Good, good advice. I'd like to pivot into another topic area, Andrew, that I also think something that you care a lot about, which is about the fast fail, fast fix. and and feedback loops. I think these two things are relatively connected to each other. And I want to reference another LinkedIn post of yours from a few days ago, which really stood out to me, which is that you were testing something with the speed of eight variants of tests in a 24-hour period, this rapid, I mean, extremely rapid testing cycle, where you cycle through eight new variants of creative every 24 hours, and you kept cycling and cycling until you, and every time, every 24 hours, you would pick the top performer, throw out the other seven and then iterate off of that top performer and then run it back again. And then eventually you nail, you nailed it and then the engagement skyrocketed, conversions and everything else. That to me is fascinating because we are really big advocates of something that we call performance creative, which is this very rapid iterative type of creative that doesn't have any judgment or opinions other than the pure results. And it's ready to just move really, really quickly and iterate off of every single win and just absolutely without any emotions, discarding creative in, in large quantities. I want to know more about this test and how you actually pull that off.
0: Yep. So yeah, absolutely. I can talk about it um, at length, but let me give you kind of a couple of models at the top end of that. So I do believe in feedback yeah. loops. Many years ago, I started using the term fast fail. I, I mean, I obviously didn't coin it. I probably, you know, crypt amnesia, right? I picked it up somewhere. But then as I was working through that process with one of the CEOs, I respect greatly, Brad Levy at Symphony, he said, Andrew, fast fails negative. No one wants to fail. Why don't we take that and turn it into more of a positive? So then I added the fast fix part of it. And I, with my team, I actually, you talk more Mm -hmm. about fast fix than fast fail. Because it's not really failing, you're learning, right? It's a feedback loop. So that's one thing. Second thing is I borrow a model out of the military called an OODA loop, O-O-D-A. It stands for observe, orient, decide, and act and the battle squadrons that go through that process faster are more, are more competitive on the battlefield. And it's true for business as well. So I do have models kind of mental models behind what we're talking about. But practically <laughs> speaking, this particular can and I've done it with other types of campaigns, this particular campaign was basically we used LinkedIn as our primary channel that's we tested others, but that was where we were getting the best hits. And it was an account based marketing campaign, it was very specifically targeted at humans, roles, small buying groups, etc. And we did a couple Different campaign types. Mm-hmm. We did broader air cover campaigns per company, but then we got down to an individual kind of outreach level and we enacted creative across all those things. But you're absolutely right. So so we we took up to eight bits of creative every 24 hours. And the lesson I learned was I felt like I was pretty like, first of all, we didn't just do this in a vacuum. We partnered with a sales team. We understood the exact pain points that we thought we could map to per customer, per human. Like we got really down into the details there. So we did have a good hypothesis. But some of the stuff. some of that like the copy that I thought was going to perform actually really didn't perform well at all and that was kind of a shock to me because I feel like I do have a good sense of like I I have a good gut instinct a lot of the time but in this case the data proved me wrong I'm not saying every time but it was kind of shocking Mm -hmm. because there was some creative I thought I I really liked it but then as they say you have to kill your darlings right and so we had to kill some darlings Mm -hmm. and then some of the stuff that I thought was just kind of you know dry and wouldn't perform very well actually performed incredibly well so that told me something Mm -hmm. so we cycled through and we we got better and better and better and we could see the progress and sometimes we took a step backwards and then we took two steps forwards on it and we kept doing it and we kept doing it and doing it. and finally it really there there really was a strong pipeline contribution led to closed one one ma- you know, major major deal which was exciting popped out of that particular process but i i just learned i learned the power of listening to the data that that iterative improve on it improve on it improve on it and i will never you will know, never forget that i'll always implement that that type of process it was it was a good one. And then I would say one extra note mm-hmm. is as, you know, some marketers are focused on specific regions or geographies, Symphony was very global. We were servicing financial centers and hubs all over the world. And so we actually activated this campaign in the US and it did really well. We took it over to activate it in the UK for some of those customers again, ABM approach. And people mean many things by ABM, right? I'm just talking about one specific type of campaign through one specific type of channel. But basically, Mm -hmm. I got a call from our head of sales in the UK within like 24 hours of us launching that campaign. He's like, Andrew, stop that campaign. We got to talk. I was like, what? He said, I said, this worked really well in the US. We just decided to test it and launch it. He's like, the tone's not right for the UK. It's too American. It's it's a little, it's like 25% too aggressive and bold. And it's not playing well with the people I'm talking to. They're seeing it and they don't like it what I would say is that leads to another process. And we corrected it. We pulled it back and it started performing really well. We kept it a, a little less bold, a little less aggressive, just by like 25, 30%. We pulled it back and it did its job. But that leads me to another mm-hmm. concept and process that I've activated recently. And that is what I call a loop group. So instead of just having the data feedback, I also usually have a very small trusted team of folks that I can just run something by in a moment's notice. Like I can slack them or put them on. I was on symphony at the time. So we use symphony as the chat platform, but like I can immediately say, hey, I need feedback within five minutes on this thing, like instant feedback from a human being just to get a gut check. And that can include your sales team, Mm -hmm. your product team, even customers, even board members, if appropriate, if it's strategic enough. And I've done all that. But that loop group Mm -hmm. concept is another thing that I think is immensely helpful.
1: That's really interesting. Yeah, the loop group. That's great. And how long did that whole process take from start to finish for the US test that eventually was very successful?
0: Roughly six Um, weeks. It was roughly six weeks. And then I believe in biweekly marketing sprints and waves and things like that. So we did continue to roll that type of activity out after that. But the six weeks was where we really got it right.
1: And what, what were the primary KPIs that you were measuring in that case? Well, so,
0: so a few things. Um, we definitely looked at engagement rate at the top. And then we looked at conversions. And then we actually looked at kind of multi-touch marketing on our top accounts, and then we tracked it all the way through to closed one. The KPI that I was tasked with that we were working on that I wish, we, I wish we could have done a little better on was at Velocity when I talked about that was a marketing OKR for the team where we would basically improve the velocity of deals. We had pretty long deals sometimes. Some of them were shorter. Some of them were longer. We could be 12 or 18 months. And so one of the ideas was, how can we compress that? You know, how can we compress that time? And we were working on it. We made progress on it. But you, you always want more. You always want more there.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. So we
0: tracked marketing source to closed one. We tracked top accounts closed one with six or more marketing touches. Like there were a lot of different things we did.
1: Yeah, and I do like that you were that you were following that all the way downstream to closed one in the in the CRM. What CRM were you using by the way?
0: Salesforce. My team implemented Marketo. We stitched it to Salesforce.
1: Great. Now a quick word from our sponsor. The Paris Talks Marketing Show is affiliated with Hop Online. A performance marketing agency focused on high growth SaaS and other recurring revenue based companies. If you like the flow of this conversation, you may want to consider jumping on a discovery call with someone at Hop Online. A discovery call is similar to my podcast interviews in a lot of ways. We'll get to know your business goals, competitive landscape, and marketing needs. And you'll almost certainly come away with some new ideas for how to accelerate your customer and revenue growth. If you're interested, go to hop.online. That's hop, H-O-P dot online, and book a discovery call with one of our strategists today. Now, back to the episode. I'd like to talk about influencer marketing now. And you also have a concept that you brought up and, and spoken about and written about uh, the, the power of micro influencers. And I think a lot, of, a lot of our listeners know what influencer marketing is, but not as familiar with the concept of a micro influencer. What is a micro influencer and how can that help marketers? Yep.
0: I mean, I think they're, I'm just going to kind of create the definition on the fly, right? I often ask CEOs I work with, I say, how famous do you want to be? Do you want to be Super Bowl famous or do you want to be pub famous? Meaning down at the corner, they know who you are, right? And I think that that's just the mentality I'm Mm -hmm. thinking about. So for that pub famous, which is fine, I mean, not everyone can be or wants to be Super Bowl famous, right, for the local, you know, doctor or dentist shop or whatever, or, or barber, they don't they don't need to be Super Bowl famous, they'll be successful at the pub. I think about folks that are active and vocal and have their own kind of following, especially on social media, but they're not the massive kind of superconductors they're not the Elon Musk of the world right and and everyone has their role but those micro influencers for example i was working with a compliance company and we identified several kind of regional law firms where one of the partners at the law firm was very active on social media they didn't necessarily have thousands of followers they had a few hundred but those few hundred were you know folks that we would want to kind of get into the slipstream of so i've implemented this a couple different times i've been a fractional cmo recently and with this compliance company we're still working through all the the process on it. But just that concept of like, could you gather a small group of influencers who really are connected to a group that you want to get to? And then how do you motivate them and partner with them? Because it's got to be bi directional. It's not just all about you, right? What's in it for them, right? It's the with them for them. So figure that out, figure out their motivation, see how you can help them out, and then ask them to help you out. And maybe you do a joint blog post. Maybe you invite them onto a webinar as a guest speaker or whatever. But these folks aren't necessarily well-known or famous, but they have a small group of other humans that are listening to them and trust them and following them. And you can leverage that. And again, it's not it can't all be self-serving. That's not appropriate. But there's a joint halo effect there. So I, I do think about that and I've worked on that and I'm still working through uh, perfecting that, but it seems like a good mm-hmm. approach. I, I don't think it's the whole motion, but it's a motion, right? And so that, that's just something I think about. Like, Who are the pub famous folks that could help your business and how do you befriend them? Yeah, that's awesome. I know, oh, by the way, yeah. some, some of your employees, yeah. if you're in a larger company, some of your employees are fit that, right? And so you can actually mm-hmm. use your employees much more effectively as kind of force multipliers to amplify as well. And I've done that several times, too. So it doesn't necessarily need to be outside the org. Yeah. It can also be inside the org.
1: Sure. Yeah, very good point. Andrew, you've, you've got a lot of B2B experience and then also a lot of deep B2C insights. I want to ask you this. What are some of the lessons from B2C that B2B marketers can learn?
0: Yeah, I always appreciate that question. I do think about that. And I think we're all look we're all consumers. And the old the old joke in B two B is like, well, your B two B buyer uses the same behavior as a consumer; they just have a bigger checkbook and more checks and balances to buy stuff, right? But it's a lot of those things. And I think I think what's lacking, and I'm being a little bit generic in this, but what's lacking is emotion, right? I think we have gotten so dry in our B two B message and marketing. And so, for example, I think about any good human interest story. Just look at any good human interest story. Look at any lead in in the Wall Street Journal, the F. Fortune, like any of those, lead, even if it's a hardcore business story, they always lead with that moment, mm-hmm. that human interest moment. And how do we do that as B2B marketers? How do we pull that up higher? How do we talk about the day in the life? Mm-hmm. You know, how do we talk about the mom that pulls her kids out of the burning building at the top of the article? Like it's dramatic, right? But I'm, I'm just saying like, where, where's the human interest? I think we just, we stepped so far away from that. Some companies I think can get there and do get there. And I think we're talking a lot more about kind of human-centric, human-centered this and that. We started that when I was working with both Brad Leib and David Gurley at Symphony. We talked a lot about human-centric. So I think that's an important part of it. I talk about wrapping data around humans, right? Instead of just talking about the data itself. But I would say like, just what's the interesting thing? So one of the brand, and I pitched this brand a bit, but one of the brands, I, I have these tiny little pocket notebooks that I use called field notes. They were invented by an ad agency Aaron Draplin out of Oregon, who's a designer, and Jim Coyle out of Chicago, who's actually an ad guy. They came together and launched this brand 10, 15 years ago, and it's a phenomenal brand. They sell millions of these little notebooks. But like that, they, they will just do fun little video shorts whenever they launch a quarterly edition, like a subscription edition, and they'll just do a fun little video, high production value, short, interesting, good story, amazing storytelling. And then like the founders will just post pictures from their road show. They're like in a van driving to the Grand Tetons or whatever, and they'll post a picture of you using the notebook, it's just there's interesting things there, right? And it's just it feels like you get to know kind of the founders of the brand a bit. There are many stories tucked mm-hmm. into that there's user stories, they built communities across several channels. And it just, but it feels authentic. And it feels interesting. And it's just quirky enough that you pay attention to it. And again, I think these are some lessons that B2B, you have to be on brand, of course, you do. And there, there are moments where you got to be pretty dry and clinical. But where's the human interest? Where's the quirkiness? Where's that little extra jolt of creativity. Don't have to go over the top with it, but be interesting, be memorable, be vivid, right? How do we do that?
1: Yeah, that's, that's great. And I think that also underscores one of the reasons that I see people much preferring content on LinkedIn from personal profiles that shared from personal profiles as opposed to company profiles or company pages because it just has a more human aspect to it. And I do think more and more now that the founders and CEOs and other C-levels at companies, they need to come from behind the curtain and really show people what their day-to-day life is like and take this more humanistic approach and sometimes even communicate some of the things they're struggling with. That's what people, are, I believe, are drawn to. Those are the personal stories and that can make for fantastic B2B marketing in the end.
0: I agree. And I think we're seeing a trend on LinkedIn, which I think is a welcome trend where people are talking about things like mental health, like struggles. One of the companies I follow is Aha, Brian DeHoff. He, he's an amazing guy and he bootstrapped his company and that there are a hundred million ARR now after bootstrapping. And it, he he does a phenomenal wow. job and very transparent. He, yeah. He's just had this multi-year kind of narrative set of arcs. It's like talking about, you know, how tough it is to fire someone. How do you have to deal with a bad day. Like, he'll, he'll just go in and talk about real stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, I won't go through all of it. Like we're talking, I'm, I'm seeing a lot more of that, right? Like there's posts about significant mm-hmm. mental health issues. I, I think it's healthy and it's healthy to bring that into the kind of the more work environment. You know, I think it's important discussion topics and those are pretty serious and I would treat those very seriously, but it, I appreciate those that are brave enough to mm-hmm. share those personal stories. And there's many more beyond that. And I think in light of recent news as well, there are folks on LinkedIn that are sharing very personal stories that you might not have seen five years ago. And now it's the moment to do that, which I I appreciate the boldness there. I would say also, again, people are humans and CEOs are humans. I mean, going back and again, like at Symphony, because it's recent to me, David Gurley, phenomenal entrepreneur, phenomenal visionary is now going on to do some really interesting stuff. But one of the fun articles we did is um, Legos are a favorite pastime of David's. David reads a lot. He's hyperconnected. He does a lot of stuff. He's always got multiple projects going on. But to decompress, he builds these massive Lego kits. And they were behind him on the wall in Palo Alto in his office there. And so a reporter asked about it. And that became the headline of the story. It was, you know, the, the Lego building CEO. Well, That was unexpected, right? And all of a sudden you're like, oh, this guy is a guy. He's a dad. He likes building Legos. He gets stressed. He decompresses by building the Lego kits. This is meditation. So all of a sudden it's like, I mean, we're talking about some dramatic things, but also it can be a little bit lighthearted too. And people want to know this stuff. Like they're they're interested, right? How many CEOs are going to say, yeah, I got a hundred boxes of Legos in my closet. I mean, how many, who's going to say that?
1: Yeah. I think when the CEO herself or himself becomes relatable, then the company also becomes relatable. And then that distance gets closed. You feel like you, you kind of even know the CEO personally because he's invited you into his living room or taking you out on a run or you see him in his car or something like that. Then you think, all right, I mean, this is all, at the end, this is a person just like me and, and going through the day to day and struggling with things sometimes. I think it's natural for people to associate brands with the founders and then with the CEOs. I think some of the best B2B marketing now is building personal brands from the CEOs and founders themselves, because that naturally then gets associated. That goodwill would naturally then flow over to the company brand.
0: I mean, it's got to be natural, you know, sometimes it's contrived, but it's got to have some reality to it. I'm not saying you're not going to polish it up or put better lighting in the office or whatever when they're taking pictures, but it's got, it's got to be real. I hate to even use the A word, the authentic word, Mm because I think that's overused. But again, it's got to be on personal brand, right? Yeah. And there's
1: so much more that I'd love to ask you, um, but as we wrap up here, and I hope we can continue again on another episode, but is there anything that I didn't ask you that you were hoping I would ask you, or is there anything else that you think could benefit our audience?
0: I mean, that's an excellent question. That's one of my very favorite questions. I think you you should ask kind of what motivates, because I think we all are, you know, trying to recalibrate sometimes our motivation as we move through our journeys and our careers, right, and different points. And so the thing that motivates me right now is basically curiosity. I think there's the old adage that, you know, the, the wiser you get, the less you know. And I think that is almost true in marketing. And so I feel in some ways like I am back at the start of my career. I'm curious. I don't know it all, but I know how to go find out. right? And so that's the thing that's different is there's a robust community out there of other marketers like there's never been before. And this is part of that. There are others out there that are doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. There's great channels on Slack. I mean, there's so many different forums now that didn't exist before. And so, you know, what motivates is to me is like creativity and curiosity, but also I'm appreciative to go back to the gratitude concept for the community of other marketing leaders that are freely sharing amazing knowledge. I hope that I can contribute to that too, but I'm grateful every day that I have a community I can go to and ask a question and get a phenomenal answer and solve a problem, or at least help me towards the solution of a problem. So those resources were not available a long time ago. Now they are.
1: I hear you. Yeah. And you're right about the gratitude. We ought to really enjoy this. It keeps getting better and better. Absolutely. Great. So Andrew, where can people find you online?
0: LinkedIn. I just, I'm doubling down on LinkedIn right now. So I'm active there. Happy to connect with anyone, happy to help in any way I can. Good move.
1: Great. All right. Well, I appreciate the time today and I hope we can do it again. And it's been a real pleasure, Andrew.
0: Likewise. Appreciate it. Be well.
1: Another great episode in the books. Hope you enjoyed it. If you want to get notified when future episodes drop, be sure to subscribe to Paris Talks Marketing on your favorite podcast player. And to learn more about our growth marketing agency, visit hop.online. That's hop.hop.online. Have a great day.